This episode and all of our South by Southwest coverage is brought to you by Black Magic Design. Hey everybody, this is John Fusco, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. Adam Egypt Mortimer's latest feature, like many others currently on the festival circuit, is the result of an enormous amount of careful planning and obsessing over details. About 32 pages or so's worth, to be precise. In pre-production for Daniel Isn't Real, Mortimer created what he calls a style guide, which is essentially a heavily detailed lookbook that breaks down every single aspect of production for the key members of his crew. This includes not only notes on how the film should look aesthetically, but also the reasoning behind the choice of gear for each shot and how each scene relates thematically to the broader arc of the story. The guide played an essential role in both keeping the crew on the same page and allowing key production members to keep Mortimer on track if they saw him straying from the mission. The mission in this case was to convey the harrowing story of a troubled college freshman named Luke who resurrects his childhood imaginary friend Daniel to help him cope. The film features a few young members of Hollywood royalty in its cast with both Patrick Schwarzenegger and Miles Robbins playing the schizophrenic duo. I sat down with Mortimer for a case study of sorts back at South by Southwest. We take a deep dive into the process and components involved in creating the perfect lookbook using his own work as a guide. Enjoy. Hey guys, this is John, and I am here with Adam Egypt Mortimer, Hello. the director of Daniel Isn't Real, which is a midnight film that I saw at South by last night. Congrats. Thank you. On the premiere. Thank you. I'm glad you got to see it yeah. on the big screen for the first time. I mean, it was it's just insane to see a movie for the very first time in a theater like that with all those people at midnight. Was that the first time that many of the people that like actually worked on the project had seen it as well? Or Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Most of the people who... I'm trying to think. I mean, the editor, yeah, of course, of course, saw the whole movie, and the sound designer mm-hmm. who was there had seen the whole movie. Cool. And the producers, but that's it. Nobody, you know. And we had production designers, art department, costumes. We had, um, you know, line producers, and and all. There's so many people there. Oh yeah. And uh, none of them had ever seen the casting director. You know, it's funny. I was talking to the casting directors, and it's like they were so deeply involved with the movie so long ago <laughs> and then and then they don't really hear from us and then suddenly it's like boom here's a finished movie so um it was a i think it was an intense experience for a lot of people to see how it finally turned out i mean it's one of those movies that like i can't even imagine someone who was involved like seeing it for the first time seeing because there's so many different elements that come into it later on yeah. you know mm-hmm. uh all the character design like the um these CGI trippy sequences and of course the sound and score everything coming together like that is a real treat for an audience to watch I think I mean and it's a treat for the filmmakers to go through that process Mm -hmm. you know the fun thing is like how you know I had a co-writer on this so originally for years and years it was just me and Brian Mm -hmm. in our little world like writing it thinking about it and then it becomes at a certain point it becomes you work with the producer and me and Josh Waller and 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 Dan Noah, specifically of the four people from Spectre Vision, were, were just worked so closely. I've worked with Dan for years on the script. And then you get your cinematographer who was on this, who was Lyle Vincent, and then suddenly he's the most, you know, he's my creative partner, and every decision mm-hmm. I make is sort of working with him. And then after it's shot, it's the same. Then you're in a room with the editor, and it's like everything else disappears, and every intention you had goes out the window, and you start over with all this footage. Totally. And on this project, because we had such a wonderful sound designer and um and you know sonic elements that became a whole you know because the edit is done and then i sit down with owen who was our sound designer and 
we worked for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks on developing the the soundscape of it, which becomes like a whole other, like really close kind of partnership. And yeah. that's a you know to to have so many different people that are like your you know you're completely integrated with them and then move on to the next person. It's very it's a very interesting sort of relationship. And I guess it sort of puts into focus what a director does. Yeah, totally. Because every single one of these people were better at doing what they do than I am doing mm-hmm. at what they do. Mm-hmm. And um but to be there from the very beginning to the end and make sure that it's the thing that it was supposed to be is I guess is what a director Absolutely, does. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, you know, having your vision and being able to implement the other key members of your crew to make that vision yeah. happen because yeah. you're not the person that like necessarily can make everything in your movie yeah. happen. Yeah. You know, and you gotta be open to giving over to letting the people who are masters at these things do what they do best. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we're, we're, uh, talking about this lookbook that you created or yeah. style. Well, guide. this isn't a lookbook. So I'll, t- the, you know, the process of sort of creating visual elements for this, I did have a, I created a lookbook way back when we finished writing the script. And that's something that is sort of like, it's your first stab at what would I do as a director that, you know, differentiated from what I do as a writer and it's a sales tool. So yeah. I'm sending people the script with the lookbook saying, would you like to do this movie? And I think sometimes people will look, will read the lookbook first and, you know, which is sort of cheating, but they might be like, Ooh, this is the exciting, easy thing mm-hmm. to read. And do I like the vibe of the movie? Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's really helpful in sort of s- selling it and also, you know, getting people interested in, sort of why you want to make the movie and what it's going to turn out to be. Once the movie became a movie that was actually financed we were going to make, that's when I started making this thing called the, the style guide. And the idea with that is to have a document that shows with as much clarity as possible every element of what the movie is going to be so that when I'm hiring people, they can look at it and know what I'm looking for and what they can bring to it. And, you know, and then day to day, I'm referring to this thing every day when we're there on the set going, because it's, it's a way to go back to all your themes. And when somebody says, do you want this red coat or this yellow coat? I can go, well, according to our style guy. (laughs) It's also a good way to kind of suss out your potential collaborators. I think in a way, absolutely. Like show them the thing and then be like, Oh yeah, this is how we can build off of what you've already given me. And it's a really great way to maintain, you know, if the, if the, the thrust of what a director is doing is trying to maintain a very clear vision, uh, in the face of having all the, the the chaos and all the different creative voices coming in, how are you controlling that? So having this document was a way, you know, because sometimes I would talk to somebody like I I was going to, when I was interviewing people to hire like a DP, if they hadn't seen this, sometimes they'd come on and say, Hey, you know, from reading the script, it feels like, you know, maybe you want to just shoot it all handheld and da, 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 da. And I'd I'd say, actually, I'm going to send you this document. It'll, tell you exactly how I'm imagining it to look and then we can speak again and, you, and you'll tell me how we could achieve this this thing and they and then they'd read it and go oh okay so it's like this you know like yeah. so it's just so helpful you know and, and it was my production designer Kate uh, McKennany was like so excited to get this and see that I had thought through the meaning of the colors in the movie and things yeah. like that I can tell you do you want me I could read I you the um, table of contents let's hear it and we can you know sort of yeah. so let's walk through uh, the first the first page well first there's a beautiful page with just some stills from you know paintings and, and a shot from Fight Club and just colors and things and then the the sections are themes and this is you know the key like you look at the themes Every decision you make comes from the themes, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's a really great way to to know, to have the movie be 
consistent mm -hmm. and meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, so themes and then camera and staging, which uh, let me see if I can remember what that was about. Oh yeah, so so here's the big phrase that I used for the camera and staging in this movie was uh, isolationism versus kinetic maximalism. Wow. And the idea was <laughs> that at the beginning of the movie, you know, Luke is a character who's really lonely and, sure. and he's alone. And, and so I was trying to like, what does that feel like isolationist? And, and you know, for example, there's a shot early on where we're looking through the window uh, when he's sitting in the window in his dorm room in college and he's in this little square and the rest of the frame is a brick wall and it's very flat and he's like just sort of imprisoned and you can only halfway see him through the glass and it's that to me that's like a metaphor for the way he feels as somebody who's isolated he's on the phone there's nobody else in the frame you know and then kinetic maximalism is what happens once Daniel gets involved and then suddenly the camera's flying you know there's a scene early on where they walk into a walk towards an art gallery in Brooklyn and we had the camera operator, Eileen, standing on a dolly. So we were pushing her on a dolly to keep up with them and then whip panning to other people and whip panning back to them so that it has this kind of, mix, you know, the mix of a dolly move, which is structured and beautiful, but the energy of, of handheld and, you know, the idea that we could find ways to move the camera around and move the lights around and keep things always moving and dense, but not not so chaotic that it's like a born identity kind of movie. And these are things that, you know, just from those two terms that you co sort of coined for this film, you were able to then talk about with your production designer, with your cinematographer, so you can sort of build this language uh, for the scenes themselves and then throughout the movie, right? Constantly, like, you know, I remember we were scouting our location uh, for the exteriors of where the college was, where, where Luke is at the beginning of the movie. And, um... And I was saying to Kate, the production designer, I said, should we be making some signs that say, you know, like fraternity signs or, or join a club or things like that? And she said, no, because this part of the movie is isolationist. Mm. And so we don't want to feel like there's all of these social opportunities. Let's try to film the school more starkly. Yeah. So yeah, that's, yeah. you know, production design really vibing off the theme and kind of keeping me on track. Because there's something sort of more, maybe the more realistic idea would be to say, yeah, we need these, you know, it's, it's join a club day. And you see those in college movies a lot. And there's yeah. a lot of activities. And she had the, you know, the wisdom to pull us right back to the theme and right back to the sort of aesthetic design. Yeah, totally. And then, I mean, as, you know, as the film builds and as you get that kin kinetic uh, maximalism, mm -hmm. uh, you, you're in like these party scenes and there's a lot of people around and there's a lot of lights and there's a lot of like crazy shit going on. Yeah, uh, it's like very frenetic. The, the like the pacing of the movie and the actual like uh, scenes just feel like uh, exploded yeah. compared to the isolated. Yeah, yeah that's and, cool. and we did that in the in the sound design as well. Yeah. You know, some of the earlier stuff. It's it's. I mean, there's. A, there's a prologue that's quite dense and crazy with, sure. the, with the little kids. And then, you know, it's very quiet at the beginning. It's, you know, it's, he's, he's alone. There's not too much sound. And then we just crank that thing up to 11 yeah. as, it, as it goes on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, would, I had to wear earplugs in the sound mix um, because, you, you know, when you watch the movie for 100 minutes, as loud as possible, it's a cool experience. But when you're there for 12 hours going back and forth over the same loud moment, it starts to sound so loud that you make the mistake of thinking it's too loud. And suddenly you start to like, kind of second guess yourself and go like, oh no, we gotta pull this down, we gotta make it quiet because this is just too much, it's crazy, but it's just because you've been listening to it for seven hours and your ears are ringing. So I was sitting in the sound mix stage with earplugs in just so I would sort of be immune to the like, brutalism which was the very thing I wanted to create yeah it's like I mean musicians you know like yeah. heavy metal musicians yeah. essentially you know yeah uh, so wait, what's what's next on so here? yeah so um, then I have point of view and coverage 
And this was um, a huge challenge in this movie because one of the characters is not real. He exists only in the mental landscape of the other character. Um, and so we had to figure out a way that we could depict a grounded emotional reality of these two characters, but also make it feel like one of them is sort of in the in the mental world. And so we had you know these really specific rules about like we can shoot. Luke clean, but when we shoot Daniel, he should be dirty. Like you should see pieces of Luke or other people in the shot. And we have to make sure not to shoot wide shots where it would look like somebody can see Daniel. When we shoot a wide shot, the person looking at him has to not be in the frame unless it's... And then, you know, so we had certain rules like that and also wanting to show Daniel with a much longer lens so that he would be both more sort of seductive looking and, and more sort of uh, isolated and in his own world so that when things switch around later in the movie, then we change all the rules and shoot the people differently because their relationships have changed. However, when we're shooting the movie, we constantly break the rules also because, you know, suddenly there's a moment where well, we want this one to pop in a certain way, so let's, you know, not, you know, follow these rules. But being really aware of the rules and, re like, and it tore me up to think about, like, it is, was really, it's hard enough to just design cool coverage in a scene, let alone when you're like, okay, it's cool coverage and also this person can't see him and we want it to be kinetic maximalism, so the camera has to be moving, but it has to move, it's like, it really gave us a headache, so really obsessing about those rules which is something that I had done before, you know, early on, and then once we hired Lyle, it was Lyle and I talking together about these rules over and over and over again to the uh, kind of consternation of anybody else around us, because people don't always realize like, what is going to be important, because you know, people will say things like, well, the audience doesn't care, and it's like, it's, I'm not worried about them caring, I'm worried about creating the, like, the unconscious recognition or this unconscious feeling, they're gonna feel something and then they're gonna feel it when it changes again. So that was something very specific to this movie that we had to think about a lot. Yeah, and I think like having a, such a deep knowledge of the rules makes it much more impactful when those rules are broken, mm -hmm. do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, it really can like shift your movie in a completely new direction. You gotta be open to those discoveries while you're on set shooting yeah. a film. Yeah, absolutely. And even late, and in post too, like, you know, some of these, some of these uh, rules wound up following us into Sonics. So early in the movie, we didn't fully Daniel. He's walking around. He's swinging. A, he's swinging his uh, his broomstick, and you can hear the sound of a sword, which is what he's pretending it is. But you can't hear his footsteps. And then later, there's a there's a scene about halfway through the movie where they walk into the steam tunnels, and things become really sinister. And suddenly, Daniel has these incredibly loud footsteps. And it represents this idea that he's becoming stronger. He's weighing on Luke's mind. He's, you know, gaining a kind of power, even though he's not actually physical. Um, and I think all of that stuff followed from the, the thinking early on about the camera. What do your notes on coverage look like in that in that book? Is it uh, in that style guide? Is it uh, like plot? Are they like actual plots or diagrams of how you want the shots? It's to just look, a list. It's a list of rules, like that. You know, it's like a bullet point list. Gotcha. And they are. Uh, it's all like I mean, they really are like rules. rules. They're sort of like physics rules. Mm. It's always possible to see Daniel behind other characters. Mm. You know, that was something that is a really important part of the design of the movie is that he's you know there's a lot of scenes where Cassie the, the character played by Sasha Lane will be 
talking to Luke and interacting with Luke and thinking it's just the two of them. And then uh, Daniel is right behind her, looking at her neck, or like he's yeah. right there in yeah, the yeah. shot, menacing. But if he came around in front of her, that would violate the rule. True. Uh, never show an over of someone facing Daniel. Mm-hmm. So what we did there, and you can see it in some of the stuff with the mom, and is that if we want to do like a three shot, it's a profile shot. So mm-hmm. we're looking at it sort of objectively. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of being like over somebody looking at Luke, it becomes very problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luke and Daniel on the same side of a three-person conversation. This is something that we called Luke's omniscient head, <laughs> or uh, because Lyle and I took a Buddhist approach to the cosmology. We talked about it like, what would Buddha see? Like Buddha sees mm-hmm. the way that Luke sees the world. So mm-hmm. there's something objective, but it's an objectivity through. Luke's point of view. Hmm. Singles of Daniel keep him tethered to Luke, which mm-hmm. is about making him dirty as when possible. Um, wh- uh, there's a rule about how being over Daniel when he's looking at somebody else, careful of eyelines. Um, mm. And then true objective shots, and true objective shots are a fun thing we do every so often. There's a, there's a scene where Luke is essentially cheating on his logic exam because Daniel has all the answers written on his yeah. naked body. Yeah. And uh, and there's this. They're looking at each other and interacting, and it's in like kind of close shots and medium shots. And then we pull to this super wide shot where you see the whole room, and Daniel's not there, and Luke is just sort of staring into yeah. space and writing down answers. Yeah, yeah. And that gets a laugh every time we show it's, it, which I love that 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 got a laugh. I think that's so interesting. I've seen that in a few movies here now this uh-huh. uh, this week, and I I love it. I've yeah. never really like noticed it before I uh-huh. came to this festival. The true objective shot uh-huh. where it's like, okay, we're so in this world now with yeah. this person. Like the music is. Uh, is is like in you know the mo- the the movie of the or sorry the world of the movie yeah. but then you just like you break the music you break any sort of yeah. uh, firsthand like experience and it's just like you see it as an observer yeah. would see it in reality yeah, totally it's really fun and um you know so the whole movie was shot on anamorphic lenses yeah. on uh, vintage lenses but when we did the objective shots those are uh, spherical oh interesting so there's you know this really subtle total difference in the way that we're seeing the world in these objective moments as as opposed to the the subjective ones hmm. and um so that was it and then i think the rest of the page is about which lenses you know we liked to shoot daniel with the 85 millimeter lens and mm. you know et cetera, et cetera, things like that and these are all things that changed as we started shooting right. it but again it's like having this having this battle plan i mean we talked about something in the in the quest the q a last night after the premiere where um Patrick, who plays Daniel, said, you know, we rehearsed these scenes for a long time, and then we just changed everything when we shot it. <laughs> and, I was, and my response to that was, well, we rehearsed them so that we could change it. Because if you don't come in super prepared with rules and a, and a battle plan, you're too panicked to be able to yeah. respond to what would be better in the moment. Yeah, it makes it harder to play, you know, unless, if you don't have those rules yeah, yeah, in mind. Yeah, um, yeah. What's next? Um, <laughs> this next, is cool. Next section... Uh, so this is colors, colors, which is just super fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I did have stuff on how you know uh, using shots from other films to sort of depict the idea of how some of that covering stuff would work. Sure. The colors is a series of um, of color palettes mixed with images that has to do with different parts of the movie. Oh, I like that. It's and like it's like cinema for 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 our listeners. It's like cinema grids. If yeah. you're If you follow totally. Instagram, yeah. them on Instagram. Yeah. yeah. So I, I pulled stills that were sort of in the tone that I was looking for and isolated what the main colors were mm-hmm. and created my own sort of palettes for it. And it's like this was sort of the idea, the first part of the movie that's in these tans and cool greens and blues 
that goes along with this isolation idea. And then when Daniel enters, now we're introducing warm colors like like red and purple, or this color that I kept calling ultraviolet, which was uh, supposed to be sort of Daniel's otherworldly and also exciting color. And it's not just on him, but it'll be like, now they go to a play, they go to a, an art gallery and that happens to have neon colors that relate to him because yeah. he's brought Luke into this whole new world. Just thinking about, you know, characters in terms of corresponding them like with colors, I think is an interesting way to actually like build that character. Oh up, yeah. Oh, you know? Absolutely. And that, and so, you know, that's another thing that became really helpful for the production design to understand, well, what part of the movie are we in? So what should this scene looks like? What should the walls look like? And then also the costume designer, Begonia would, you know, Luke is only ever dressed in, blue and dark colors and, and khakis, whereas, you know, there's all of these colors happening with Daniel. Right. Um, so, you know, everybody can use these. And then we, we, we use them for lighting cues and this totally insane, this, uh, you know, the ending of the movie, which we've recently started calling the... Uh, Miles, what did we call it? The Labyrinth of... Labyrinth of Mental Hell. Okay. So the end of the end of the movie, which is a labyrinth of mental hell, then the, so the, it's sort of like the final gasp of the of these color designs, and, and then suddenly we're seeing these wild ultraviolet neons and these like really uh, terrifying oranges and things mm. like that, which mm -hmm. are colors that have only been hinted at before that. Mm. Uh, but I agree. I mean, color color story is just like it's one cool. of those exciting things. And when you know that, I was able to do it even on my first movie, which was an incredibly small movie, um, but on, uh, uh, you know, sort of leveling up a little bit into the realm of being able to hire like an amazing production designer and things like that to really be able to express these colors yeah. is, is just such a joy yeah. as a director. It's a great entryway, you know, yeah. into character yeah. and into, I mean, production design. And creating the vibe, you know, you want to create yeah. these feelings. It's like, how do you, you know, how do you tell this kind of a story, which is a really bleak, dark, scary story, but how do you... How do you tell it so that it crackles with the energy mm. and excitement that mm -hmm. is required mm -hmm. to do this? And, and the, all, the, all those ultraviolet moments are the, the more colorful, I think, warmer moments that you were mm -hmm. talking about happen with that kinetic uh, camera movement yeah. that you're, you're using, too. So yeah. you get to see, like, everything kind of interweave there. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I have a, a, a long section on production design sure. where, you know, I pulled you know, what does the college look like? What does the doctor's office look like? What does the apartment look like? And, you know, so these are just very helpful sort of inspirational things. And then I wrote up a little history of the apartment, Luke's apartment that he lives in with his mother and sort of a backstory. On, I mean, it really, it's like a narrative backstory on how Luke's mother grew up there. It was, it was his grandmother's house and when, who was in a hospital and when, when, you know, Claire was put away for a while, all these things that really aren't quite in the movie, but helped us to establish, because, you know, you go into a thing, a movie like this, and you're like, well, I want to have peeling wallpaper and, and pages everywhere and all this cool texture, but we can't just, it, it can't just be like this random, you know, like a lot of horror movies are sort of like, and then we are in a space that looks like the bathroom from Saw, but yeah, yeah. it doesn't make sense, because right. I thought we were just walking into a Marriott. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, so I felt like the, the, the house needed a really concrete history that would get it, you know, it's based on the psychology of the characters in it. Like mm -hmm. the house is really a representation of Luke's mother's mind. Right. And how do we depict that? It's a funny, you're, it's always like, it's gotta be the truth. It's gotta be about the characters. Uh, it has to come from the narrative, but also it has to be awesome. And, and sometimes the, you know, thinking thematically or narratively can lead to, into this trap where you're like, 
oh, well, she's a boring person, so let's shoot in a boring room. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, then why is it in a movie? Mm-hmm. You know, um, so you have to sort of figure out ways that the theme and the awesomeness yeah. can connect. Yeah. I think that's a really important part. You can even look at it from the reverse angle where it's like, oh, you have this awesome idea and you know what the awesome part is, but now you have to write the narrative behind yeah. it that yeah. justifies exactly. it. Exactly. You got to make sure that those are, those are connected. And, cool. And I felt like on this movie that was, that was a really important part about directing that I was learning mm-hmm. was... Mm. Don't be don't be imprisoned by the narrative so that you you do something boring. You know, make sure that you are always making it awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you make it awesome in a way that you know that, that makes sense? Yeah, yeah. Uh, then I have a whole page on Daniel's physicality, which and I don't want to spoil anything too much, but there the the nightmarish quality of this movie was that I didn't want. Although Daniel is this imaginary character. We don't want to present him in this ghostly, sure. translucent, you know, it was like a real, because his desires are very physical and very primal mm-hmm. and violence mm-hmm. and sexuality. So there's these, you know, moments of transformation and, and uh, where I needed to establish through really heavy hitting imagery uh, to everybody working on the movie, what, what we would be. Sure. I mean, especially there. the actors, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then there's a there's a page I'm going to skip because it's too much of a spoiler, yep. but it has an incredible the one piece in this book that was made you know especially for us before we started shooting. It was this incredible creature design, yeah. uh, but I can't talk about it. You got to see the movie, and then you know why there's an incredible creature in it. And then um, the the, it, the 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 style guide kind of wraps up going through the style sections of the movie, and the movie was broken down into five parts. Okay, sort of, interesting. So that we you, you can kind of look at you know on the day things get so hectic, and you're like, oh my god, we're shooting scene sixty three, and we haven't really thought about what's scene sixty three, and you and you look up the thing, and you go, oh, well, scene sixty three is in the manic section, and mm. the manic section is a lot of camera moves and lens flares and color. So you go, oh, okay, let's you know, I mean. I have already, you know, presumably worked out what all the shots will be, mm-hmm. but having this idea of, you know, that there's going to be an evolution to yeah, the style. Yeah, there's art, like it's more than a shot list because it's sort of like an arcing shot list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm always thinking about it in like how do you, um, like no sequence should be in isolation. So, mm-hmm. uh, so the movie needs to sort of start looking one way and ending another way. And there's a, there's a, an arc that you can follow that gets you from one place to the other. And then, you know, within, even with, you know, then within those, uh, sections, I broke it down into sequences. I mean, I really overthought it, although I think that the you term need- overthinking is like such a bad yeah, term. No, I don't think, I don't think it exists. <laughs> Cause it's for, like, this is the job. Yeah. The job is to think through, you know, and, and, and then, and like I said, then you think through it and then you get rid of everything. And then the last, like, I don't know, 15 pages of this thing is every single scene, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll just say like, scene 32 tunnel theme oblivion hmm. you know i don't wow and that was in the i think that's a, a, in the script that's just a shot of a subway a subway car going through a tunnel mm-hmm. um and but i wanted you know anything in the movie had to have some thematic connection so every scene has like a a theme every scene has a theme hmm. you know um daniel and luke in the aftermath theme forgiveness mm-hmm. and then it would say like mm. visual unnaturally dark visual Daniel hesitates in a door frame, you know, and then maybe some t- I'll say things like this scene is a breath. Luke is guilty, you know, th- just like all these little things so that when I then sit down to make an actual shot list or when we have to throw the shot list away because we've got five minutes until lunch and right. we can't do any of the things I designed before, I <laughs> at least know what was important about yeah, yeah, the yeah. scene. The heart of the scene. Yeah. Always there. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and you know, so that goes on in the, in the style guide. And I think that's that, yeah, that basically takes it 
to the very end, and then I just had a, a I had a one page sort of cheat sheet that I broke down so I could look at it when I was on set yeah. and know sort of where we are in the overall structure. So did everyone on set have this? It guide? was available to everybody, That's and sometimes if if people asked a question that I felt like would be answered in this, I would say you know it's in the style guide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but people like you know the the production designer. Uh, Kate and the, the costume designer Begonia had both really poured through it and really understood it. And by the time I had met them for the first time in pre-production, they had things, they had their own, you know, diagrams and, and samples and sheets that all were connected to these same. We were always able to communicate and say, okay, we're in section four of the movie here. So da da da, da. you know, there was there was always and Lyle, the cinematographer, grooved with this stuff too. And so between the you know those three department heads is sort of the main yeah, the creative uh, influences. We all were very aware of this stuff. And then whether or not, as you go down, you know, whether like the the the, the prop master was super aware of that stuff or not, I'm not sure, but mm. it was the production designer's job to sort of oversee and make sure that it was all gonna connect. Right, and I mean, something like this is beneficial in pre-production, production, and post-production. All, all the way through. It's yeah. just like, so, yeah. so cool. Because it's this. even, you know, because early on when we're scouting locations, I can show it to the producers and say, you know, I know that this one space we looked at that's available and cheap is cool, but remember, in the style guide, it's mm. got, you know, like that kind of thing. So we were always coming back to it. Well, great. I mean, this was an awesome case study. I don't think I've ever done anything like oh, this cool. on a good. podcast before. Good, good. Um, and hopefully, we'll get we'll just get like a a page of it. I'll give something. you something. Yeah. yeah, I'll give you something that you could post to, yeah. to the listeners because I think it would be cool to just sort of see what it looks like. And then someday after the movie is released and everybody's already seen it and mm -hmm. it won't be spoilers anymore, I will eventually release this whole thing as a PDF. So I'll probably yeah. when that happens, like in know. a year or something, I'll, I'll hit you up and you guys can you know, sort of follow up. We're with it. always I, looking for this kind of stuff. This is like guys, when I was trying books. to learn how to be a director, I was so hungry for stuff like this. So I'm happy to make it available. Cool. Well, thanks, Adam. Congratulations. Thank I appreciate it. This and was awesome. Yeah, man. Have a great South by Southwest. Thanks. See you. <laughs> thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the No Film School podcast on whatever podcast platform you use. Give us a rating. Let us know how we're doing. On a personal note, this is probably the penultimate episode for me. I have one more episode left in all likelihood with all of you um, that will be airing next week. And it's one of my favorite interviews I think I've ever done. I sit down with none other than the legendary screen editor, John Fusco, and it was a real highlight of my time at No Film School. So please tune in for that. In all likelihood, it will be my last episode on the No Film School podcast. And if you happen to be in New York, um, come check out the world premiere of my short film, The Guy, at the Brooklyn Film Festival. It is playing at 6 p.m. on Saturday at the Windmill Studios in Brooklyn. You can get more information and tickets at the Brooklyn Film Festival website. But for now, as always, check out the site for all the latest in filmmaking education and news you can follow me on twitter at jim underscore john underscore jim and you can follow no film school at no film school see you next week